You're listening to the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast. I'm your host, Krista Harden, and I'm so glad you showed up for our relationship chat today, as well as for you and your people. We're all about living intentionally here so you can experience joy and balance in your relationships once again or for the very first time. Be sure you hang with us on our social media platforms, and if you like research like I do, make sure you check out our website at enneagramandmarriage.com for our weekly newsletter, freebies, and so much more, as well as at Instagram and Facebook. We have so many goodies to share with you. Let's dive right in together. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us for our extra special episode this Wednesday. I am so delighted to bring to you a very brand new book from the wonderful author, Erin Jean Ward. She writes to us about sober spirituality in her book that just came out yesterday. So happy book week to Erin Jean Ward. Enneagram 6. But I also want to just tell you guys, we are in for a treat because we get to talk to her today about sobriety and about how we as those who would consider themselves part of a church or a spiritual community can truly honor everybody else's walk with alcohol as well as become more mindful about our own walk with alcohol. I found this episode and book to be very inspiring. As you guys know, we're studying spirituality this month a bit more in depth, and and I love to lean in on expertise from different authors in this area because I think we all bring something different to the table. And I think this episode is one of those episodes that speaks to many because alcohol is such a big part of everybody's life or history or family history. So I love that we get to talk about a topic I honestly would love to talk even more about. So thank you to Aaron in advance for bringing this topic to us. And we get to dig in together just a second here. And if you need more marriage support, we just opened up our Enneagram and Marriage support for you as well in our collective. So it's open for one week only. Make sure you hop over to enneagramandmarriage.com if you are just like, I need extra support there. And then Aaron has a ton of support for you as we get going on this podcast to really help you to really have compassion on yourself, your family, uh, as well as steps for growth, right? Because we definitely want steps for growth too. So thankful, excited, and my biggest just praise for her heart and her work here with us is in addition to her obvious talent, I love the six brilliance. I want to say that I love especially that Erin reminds us to remember that we have something that we're missing out on because of our relationship to our vices. And in, in many cases, it's alcohol. So it's it's very helpful for us to think together practically and and positively in that way. I know we can get emotional and we need to sometimes, but I want to really reemphasize just now that as you lean into better spaces and a better relationship really with alcohol, I think it's going to be a beautiful dynamic that offers you some time back if you're struggling. So I love that. I love just adding in good corners of your day. And I hope that this episode is helpful to you. It literally could be a legacy changing day. So I hope so for you or your loved ones. Make sure you share this episode and book. Everything is in the show notes. Let's talk to Erin. Erin, thank you so much for coming to the Enneagram and Marriage Pod. We are so grateful. I am so excited to be here. Uh, really, really pumped to dive in and what an honor. 
Oh, thank you. Well, we have been enjoying, I have been loving your new book and we've previewed it a bit before you came on, but we really want to first just get to know you a little bit better. Can you tell us about yourself and your outreach and a little bit about your Enneagram story? Yes. Uh, my Enneagram, let's start with my Enneagram. Um, I'm an Enneagram six, mm-hmm. uh, with a seven wing. Awesome. Um, and what I always like to say about the Enneagram is, you know, the challenge of it is that we are kind of all a little bit of them. Yeah. And so I remember when I was first like trying to figure mine out, um, I would like see an Enneagram number that I was like, that's like really cool. Like, I want to be that one. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. Like the four. I was like, I want to <laughs> be a four. Right. Yeah. And then what I was told is to like, be attentive to the ones that feel most true. And so I always joke that like the way that, you know, you found your Enneagram number is when it compliments you, but it also like reads you for Phil. And that was like my experience of reading the six. Like I was like, oh, that is true. I am loyal and I am like very, you know, and then also being like, oh, but I am prone to suspicion and struggling with all these other things. So, um, I definitely feel like I am like a true six, like even when I experience people who are like, oh, you know, I found out that I'm actually not a whatever. And I'm now this, I'm like, no, I'm a six. I'm a six in my bones. And, um, I, I, I love it as a tool. I think it shows up some in, in coaching and spiritual direction, just in the sense of knowing what your core fears are. Um, even in coaching to say like, oh, this could be a trigger for you because of your Enneagram, right? This is actually, or not because of your Enneagram, but by knowing it, I'm able to know a little bit about your fears. So when that's popping up, I see how, of course you need to cope, right? Mm -hmm. Of course that comment that to someone else might have not been that big of a deal felt really hard for you because it, it went after that core part of you. Mm -hmm. So, um, really, really love having Enneagram as a tool. Um, also just a little bit of a background. I know we started talking about the book, which I really appreciate. Uh, but I, I have a a couple of different facets of my vocation. Um, I am a priest in the Episcopal church and I worked explicitly in church ministry for seven and a half years and decided to change the way I understand my vocation by going to work at a healthcare startup focused around recovery. And that's where I began to work as a recovery coach, as a, um, a, you know, a person who did presentations and worked specifically in the recovery realm. Mm-hmm. And it was after doing that work uh, at a company, working under a clinical director and getting all of that training that I decided to start my own practice. And um, in my own practice, I offer uh, re- recovery coaching, also general coaching, spiritual direction, and a, lots of different opportunities to share my writing because my writing is is a real soul work for me. Oh, wow. We are so blessed to hear that. And I have loved your getting your Inklings newsletter. And I just love that name. It reminds me of Tolkien, but I also see it in your book as you describe Inklings. And I really love that you've been embracing more of who you really are on the journey as you remind us that, uh, of course, you said each type is going to be triggered differently, but just in your journey, your recovery has brought you through many threads of helping people spiritually, physically, emotionally, 
this is awesome and so encouraging for sixes to hear who may mm. uh, need that. I, I meet with a lot of sixes who are like, am I only meant for one thing? And you're just reminding us this can be yes. expansive work, huh? Yes, it can. And I, I think it's, it's also the dichotomy of the six is that yeah. like, we love security, we love structure. And mm -hmm. also, um, we can actually be expansive inside of like, we can have structure inside of expansiveness. Right. And so parsing out, what is it about that, that, fe that feels scary? What is it about that? That feels impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, it's interesting because we're talking about Enneagram. It reminds me of a lot of the conversations I had with my spiritual director when I was thinking about moving into this realm of, uh, leaving full-time church work and starting to, to carve this path forward that, that is quite different from what I had known before. And to all my sixes out there, I mean, we all know that is a lot like the idea of leaving, a a salary job mm -hmm. with a pension plan and health insurance and this consistency and this grounding, especially a grounding in something so old as the church, right? This tradition wow. that we, that we need, right. That feels like such a balm to us. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of, of going to a part-time job and then even moving forward into what I do now, which is full-time self-employed. Um, I remember my spiritual director, Danielle Schroyer, who I love saying, mm. you know, the core virtue of a six is courage. Mm. When sixes are moving toward their courage, it's not that we're forsaking stability. It's that we're acknowledging when security might actually be the hindrance, when that, that mm. fear might actually be in the driver's seat in a way that isn't leading us into our flourishing. Mm. And I knew... And I knew, I knew I was on the right path when, when everything on paper should have made me want to run. Mm -hmm. And yet I looked into it and I felt a deep peace. I knew exactly that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing in a way that, that no six would ever dream of. Like we would never ask for that path forward. Oh, that's rich. Oh, I love that. That's, that's very telling of how we come to the pieces of us that we were meant to find when you find mm. the deepest peace. And yet you're like, this is going to be a hard, challenging journey, totally unexpected, challenging my passion, my vice. I mean, I'm glad you responded because I have been personally blessed by your book already um, after one read, and I can tell I need another read, but tell us about, uh, about your book and just about what uh, what made you write a book called Sober Spirituality and how did God really help this particular piece of the, the career and the writing land with you? Yes, I. it's an interesting path because um, as many people will tell you when they look back, I didn't know how we would get here. Um, I definitely know now that, that what I yearned for then has come into its current state of fruition, right? There's still change that could happen in my life. And I'm always open to that, mm -hmm. open to the spirit. But I, I started when I was working, um, actually, I mean, this goes much further back as far as thinking about different, different things, but especially when I was thinking, how is this going to become a ministry? Because yeah. when I worked at the startup, it was not a spiritual startup. It was a, you know, a healthcare startup. It was not religious, mm -hmm. which was fine. You know, it was a, that, that was fine. And also I'm a priest. And so I wanted yeah. to figure out how do these different facets of my vocation become one ministry that I'm offering. 
And I started writing grants. I thought maybe this is the kind of work that is really explicitly like funded by the church, but is not a church. And um, the grant avenue did not did not work out. So I did not get funded for those things. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting to me in a spiritual sense that after I didn't get that, I thought, well, I will look into the possibility of writing a book. Mm -hmm. And I have wanted to write a book since I was 10 years old. Mm. I won a writing contest when I was 10 years old. And it was one of the first really youngest experiences of, I think, someone saying, like, this is a gift you have. This mm -hmm. is truly something about you that is is beautiful and important. And the whole time since then, I kind of yearned to be writing more. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have an English degree. I have a creative writing minor. I went to seminary, mm -hmm. like writing was so important, yeah. but I had not been able to just do the, the sort of writing that I'd wanted to do, um, mm -hmm. in the years that followed that. And so it felt like such a spiritual thing that these other avenues didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, oh, but of course, the, the, the movement forward is the calling home mm. to the soul work that like my inner child is still asking me to offer her. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. And you got to build this to fruition, to bring something very meaningful out within your gift of writing too. So I I'm appreciative that you shared that part of the journey with us too. And it sounds like it's been a personal journey. It's a journey that you've walked through yourself too, as you became sober in 2018 and you really could speak from your creative writing gift and even some personal, some personal ways that you walk to health and success as well. Yeah. I think it's funny because the book is not like a full memoir. It, it has other things it's trying to do, but I, I could not write a book like this without part of it being yeah. the storytelling aspect in large part, because um, why would you trust anyone who isn't going to say, no, I learned this through my own path. Like I got here because it was hard for me. Um, I, I got here because I did not always function well um, in my relationship with alcohol in the church, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I look back and think of this as being a largely confessional work that mm -hmm. I wish I had been a better ally mm -hmm. to people who weren't drinking. Um, mm -hmm. so, so it comes by way of my own journey of my own awakening and saying, you're not alone. If you're in whatever phase of this you're in, mm -hmm. I speak to you as someone with deep compassion for you because I have also felt these feelings, um, mm -hmm. not in the sense that I can know every single person's experience, mm -hmm. but that I can empathize with the questions, the worries, wondering what's going on here with my relationship with alcohol, mm -hmm. um, shame around however that might be taking form in your life. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to be a person who offers you theories and philosophies and thoughts. Mm -hmm. I, I want to join you and sit with you and say, yeah, this is really hard. And mm -hmm. let's, let's do this together. Mm, thank you for, for being brave and using your virtue to do that because it's, 
it's neat to see even the way you are talking now. And, and I'm remembering inside of your book now as well, that you really remind us that every story is unique and you're very respectful of other ways, many ways that people come to their healing. I I'm familiar with Michael Naylor's work. I know he was on the fathoms podcast about addictions and he was one of the first people to help me to see, you know, each person has each type has a different path to addiction. So like you said, Mm -hmm. it can be triggering for different things that are triggering for you might not be triggering for me. So I love how you're mindful of this. And guys, I want you to hear that listening. Like if you're wondering, she's a six, can she relate to me? I feel like your book really considers multiple perspectives. So thank you for that. Yeah. And thank you for noticing that. Um, I, I, in addition to my own path, I've also done a lot of work with other people who are not like me. Like I don't have sort of a, um, as long as we align on these seven things, we can work (laughs) together, you know? Uh, so part of the work of a recovery coach is to, to actually, um, be aware of like whatever wisdom I've learned in my life, but to actually ask the questions to say, okay, what's, what's triggering for you is what's most important. How are we going to put care around that? Um, also what's motivational for you? Mm-hmm. is really important. What's demotivational for you is really important. And um, the set of tools I might call on and support one person with could be tools that are triggering for the next person I'm working with. And so oh. it's actually so one of the reasons I love doing it is because it's so unique to the person and I'm able mm-hmm. to almost like it like it, it fires up a part of my brain to be like, okay, if your motivation is this and your demotivation is this, okay, this isn't going to be helpful for you, mm-hmm. but let's try these things and see how those work. And then circle back to that because the assumptions that I see in some comments about relationships with alcohol, just because of my brain, I, it pops up and I'm like, that sweeping generalization could harm someone in their recovery. Mm. And so for me, it's just really vitally important to sort of state the facts, right? Like this is what we know to be true about the chemical ethanol, right? Mm. But also to say how you navigate that has to be unique to you if it's going to actually lead to this individual person's healing. And for me, my goal is that the greatest number of people find healing. However it is, they come into that. Hmm, that's an amazing goal. And I I think everyone listening shares that with you. We want everybody to come. And I love how you, as a six, have the ability. I think you guys are very, and I think everyone has their unique intelligence, but I think sixes have a lot of wisdom to share. Uh, so I love that you're flexing that to reach people that are different from you um, and similar to you and to find that and to continue to tweak with them what works and to troubleshoot, which you're so gifted at. Um, so tell us a little bit about, because uh, I think this is really relevant to a lot of our conversations conversations this month, we're talking about spirituality and some of the issues we struggle with. And you talk about how we have had a past in the church, at least with, uh, you know, maybe being so fundamentalist that we forgot, uh, that alcohol might play a role sometimes in people's lives. And we, we shunned anyone who ever took a drink and then maybe almost landed at this opposite polarized view of, you know, Jesus turned water into wine. Everything is permissible and even everything almost is helpful. And you help Mm -hmm. us to be a little bit more cautious and tentative in some great ways here. And I wondered if you could share with our listeners some ways they can be mindful around alcohol. 
Yeah. I, I, again, this comes out of my personal life. Um, I joined fundamentalist churches when I was in high school mm-hmm. and it was very much, you know, taught to me like alcohol is evil, you know, alcohol is wrong. Um, and then became Episcopalian in college mm-hmm. and entered into, you know, what some people will call like a drinking church and, did start to, to I, I started drinking at the age of 21. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but some of that was like with my church people and, um, and not necessarily like wild drinking with church people, but just like I, I was drinking and, I, and it began to be associated with the church. So I talk about that spectrum because I've been on it. Mm-hmm. And, and now as I look into that spectrum as a person who doesn't drink, I think what really sticks out to me is that it, you know, over here, we have the thought like, um, like alcohol is evil. Don't do it. It's wrong. And Mm -hmm. over here we have the thought that's like, you know, like you said, like Jesus drank wine, let's do it. And neither of them are mindful. Mm -hmm. Neither of them take into account the reality of alcohol. Um, Neither of them take into account the reality that people around us are drinking, right? You can just say it's evil, don't do it, but that doesn't take into account the reality of what's going on and, and the people who are dying from it and the real challenges of that. And mm-hmm. saying everything's permissible also doesn't take into mind the reality of the pain that is happening around us. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I say I, I think it's important to be mindful, it, it is a leveled mindfulness. It is the greater consciousness of the reality of the world around us and the truth of that. But then it's also our personal mindfulness. Um, whether we are a person who who drinks or not, we participate in society, right? In a society that might push this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what I try to offer is a way of like, actually not demonizing either um, like denomination or group or type of church, but to say that everyone has um, an opportunity to be brought into mindfulness because I am in a church that would lean definitely closer towards like the drinking church territory. Mm -hmm. I have more thoughts around that. I don't really um, feel called to critique something I'm not part of Uh, and and I'm no longer a part of fundamentalist churches, but I, I, so I look into that context and I just think, you know, I don't think this is even what you mean to offer. Um, because there is a greater world out there and, and we don't have to, to say you need to become teetotalers to say, I'm aware that addiction is in every congregation in the United States, full stop. Yeah. I'm aware that statistically there is no community, right? Like there's no group of people sociologically who are not dealing with this. And I'm choosing to be compassionate toward the reality of what's in the room. Mm. If it's a room I enter into while saying, and I'm going to try to love this room. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I love that. I love that you're trying to really honor those people that you're with mindfully and to also steward the information you do have as an addictions expert, where you can be there to also remind us people do struggle and you might not realize it, uh, or, you know, you just opening the next bottle every time could lead you into, uh, a real territory of danger because you know, that there are 
uh, you know, I don't want to give all of, trust me guys, there's so much in her book, but like she shares some sobering statistics so that you can have a sense for there are problems with alcohol and they're not just people drinking, but there's a lot of problems, right? Yeah. Well, and, and the other part of it being, um, I appreciate us talking about the addiction, uh, part of this, but there's also a, a much more expansive group of people who don't drink. Mm-hmm. Um, I end up with clients who, for health reasons, they can't drink alcohol anymore. You know, they got put on a medicine and they can't drink. And I think as the church, we want people who have health issues to feel welcome in our churches. Mm -hmm. And if we are not attentive to the fact that some people just for health reasons may not want to drink through having an alcohol culture, we're actually not being welcoming to that person or for every person who said they really want new like families and to be in the church. I mean, for every pregnant person who's trying to find fellowship and who um, doesn't feel like they can go into church socials without feeling like there's alcohol present. Um, Mm -hmm. Most uh, depressants uh, contraindicate with alcohol. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're a church that professes to be a, a huge ally to people who are struggling with their mental health, and yet your social events aren't really very compassionate to people who don't drink. That's a disconnect. Mm. And, but let's just name that. And let's just say, oh no, I actually really do care about people who are struggling with their mental health. And now I'm aware of this. And I think I want to become even more deeply compassionate toward them. So, so let's look at how alcohol is a part of our fellowship. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's important. There's, there's a lot of people listening who are navigating that already, but some now navigating it with us for the first time, because maybe for them, it hasn't come up. And so I'm grateful you're sharing that. And this could be, like you said, anything from socials to communion, having more than one offering of wine and grape juice. Um, We know there are churches who would do just grape juice, of course, but I think that I like how you're expanding this out to, you know, world conversations to greater social experiences, because you're right. We're missing people when we're not compassionate towards, it's not just substances that we're drinking, such as water. It's, it's substances that have a lot of people have a story with alcohol. And a lot of us try not to remember that in the church setting, but it's important. Well, and as you were talking, it also stuck out to me, the number of people who have reached out to me just to say, you know, the other facet of this is, um, coming from families of abuse that were related to alcohol. So, um, uh, family of origin, just, just the reality that alcohol is actually just deeply traumatic because of that person's trauma history. And so again, like, I think as a church, we really want to be a safe haven Mm -hmm. for people who have trauma histories and, if a person with a trauma history doesn't feel safe going to your socials, that's really cutting them off from some of the community that could help them in their healing as they deal with the lifelong reality of their trauma. Because I think Mm -hmm. the church like really wants to be that balm. Mm -hmm. And so what I hope to offer is um, ways to reframe so that we can really become who I believe we wish to be and build on the, the solid ground of our deep love for these people. Hmm. 
that is key. And I, I know I want to ask some questions about those in our audience who are struggling with addictions because there's yes. probably more of them than there are even church leaders listening. Obviously some, sure. both, some both, but do you have any, Hey, read chapter six or more just a quick tip for those who are in church leadership, who would love a quick tip about that? Yes. I mean, as with most things, there's no real quick tip. Um, but I would say the most immediate thing is to really start offering really delicious, good beverages at your socials that are not alcohol. Um, in the Episcopal Church, we have the line that you have to have equally attractive non-alcoholic options available. And yet um, they are rarely, quote, equally attractive. Like it is often a Diet Coke or something. And and as much as us sobers know that Diet Coke is the OG mocktail, it was the drink that most people were only able to get for a very long time. Yeah. Um, we have a lot more options now. And so the way that your budget is willing to buy all of this alcohol, make sure that your budget is also willing to, to really invest in and buy really delicious non-alcoholic options. And if you want um, thoughts on that, I have a blog on my website and I can send you other thoughts to, to help people really craft really delicious options so that a person who's not drinking can just walk in and grab a drink. Mm, thank and you. just, it doesn't have to be a big deal. We're just gonna go in, grab a drink, walk around and go home and it not be mm. an extra stressor during mm. a time when a person might already be feeling a lot of anxiety around being in social situations as mm. they are trying to change their relationship with alcohol. Mm. Thank you. Because you're right. A lot of people who would be in a setting like a church are trying to be mindful already. They're like, I'm coming here, whatever my denomination, because I just want to have a, a safe space to process these feelings and these thoughts and a place where I can be around other people trying to do the same or be life-giving. So mm. I like how you're saying, let's, let's do that then. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so our listeners here who are either coupled or singles who are thinking, uh, yeah, this also hits me on the level of I'm struggling with addiction. And then yet there's those who still don't understand that. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, why people are choosing alcohol and what it's doing when we, uh, when we are addicted in the sense of how we're numbing out and what we're numbing out to? Yeah. I mean, the first question is a big one. Why are we choosing alcohol? And um, I always think it's really important to acknowledge that um, there's always two parts to it. So one part of it is what I can control. Yeah. Um, in order for me to quit drinking, I had to quit drinking, right? Like I had to, to do the work of no longer drinking alcohol. Yeah. But there's also another part of it, which is the fact that our world tells you constantly to drink. Hmm. So what's not helpful is for me to just blame culture and keep moving, right? Because I could do that. I could easily just be like, well, this culture is just ruining me yeah. and not change anything about my life. And I, it wouldn't change anything about my life, right? Mm -hmm. But we also need to, to hold both together. I think um, we, we've done a really good job as a culture of making sure that we think um, th th that we make you think that you're the problem. Mm. And the reality is we have a cultural problem. 
Um, statistically, 3.3 million people die globally every year due to alcohol. Mm. 3.3 million people don't die because of a personal problem. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's, we had a pandemic before the pandemic and we need to acknowledge the reality of that. It's in our advertising. It, It, you know, I joke that, for so many years, people don't even say like, do you want to hang out? They're like, want to grab a drink? Mm-hmm. Like our language is so, so built through memes, through our media, through all of it to tell us that the way out of pain, the way to celebrate, the way to be in any level of community together, the way to worship, the way to do all of these things is dependent upon alcohol. Mm. So why are we drinking? Because, well, there's a a variety of reasons, but like one thing I want to highlight is because everything around us tells us we should. Mm. Yeah. Everything around us tells us we should. Um, and, and especially if, if, if there are parents listening, um, I could do a whole episode on mommy wine culture mm. and how we're constantly mm. telling moms they need to drink more. And mm. it used to be that in rates of alcohol use disorder, men were much higher. Now it's equal between mm. men and women. Um, people assign male at birth and assign female at birth. So mm. yeah, the gap has closed on that because of of these cultural shifts in encouraging alcohol toward um, women also. So Mm -hmm. the why we drink is complex, Mm -hmm. but on the personal level, we drink because we have to cope often. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of my work is just about coping Mm -hmm. because uh, to use the pandemic as an example, um, I like to say that for, for so long, our positive coping mechanisms were not accessible to us right? Like I couldn't Mm -hmm. maybe go to the gym or I couldn't go hang out with my friends and go on a walk or um, not necessarily exercise based, but like a lot of the things that I would go and do that would be really positive. I couldn't do, Mm -hmm. but Instacart could put a six pack of wine on my front doorstep safely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it was a tool that was accessible to a lot of people during a time when they needed to cope. Mm -hmm. and coping is not wrong coping is human it's a reality of being alive Mm -hmm. the question becomes is this way of coping helping me heal is it helping me and I don't shame people who needed to cope and use the tools that were around them which maybe happened to be alcohol because that is true for a lot of people And then the question, especially the question we ask in recovery coaching or the question that people typically begin to ask when they want to change their relationship with alcohol is, okay, I needed this for a while. I needed to cope. That's fair. But also now I don't like the ramifications of the way that I'm coping and I want to work on changing that. And I want to make sure that the way that I'm coping has um, some positive benefits to it. Mm. Yeah. You're really reminding everybody there's a historicity to this whole process too, that we've all come out of this pandemic and somebody like me, who's a seven, I can literally be like, what do you mean? We just came out of it. But like, I love being reminded and pulled back of 
come on, we're taking our baggage with us. Like we learned certain things for better and for worse. And you're reminding us some of the for worse and some of the sobering statistics are very real and they're going to keep affecting families longitudinally. And I think that you're really, this is just guys, this is so important because these addictions are so widespread that even if you're a listener who's not personally dealing, we are all part of the solution together. And so I'm really grateful to you, Erin, for this, because some of the places and spaces that are working with people trying to help with recovery may even unintentionally be shaming toward them. Or maybe in our work as people, sometimes we shame people in our families that are dealing with addiction. So how can we both realize people are trying to find new ways to cope, but also help them not to feel shamed because they struggle. Yes. No, you're right. And I think it's important to, to, to really hone in on the word unintentionally. Mm. Um, I don't think most people are, are sort of, um, trying to go at it in a way that might hurt the person. I think a lot of what I see is like kind of when helping hurts, Um, and how do we love people in a way that's really empowering and supportive of them? Um, as far as shame is concerned in the language, I think, you know, not projecting onto someone else, what you think they're going through is really Mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. Um, I talk about this a little bit in the book. Um, I don't self-identify using the word alcoholic, Mm -hmm. um, I I did a lot of the like surveys where like, am I this? And, and I just never quite aligned um, because I didn't ever really feel like there was a rock bottom for me. I think there was an internal awareness that like I wasn't happy and I wanted to seek a different way of life for myself. Yeah. Um, and, and the rate at which people kind of project language onto me that I don't use for myself is always something that I really notice. Um. So if a person says to you like, oh, I'm not drinking, don't make assumptions about that person based on that, because as we discussed earlier, they could be on a medicine. They could be like, there could be a lot of different reasons. And they also don't owe you information about their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I The same way if I walk into your house and you offer me a Diet Coke and I can say, oh, no, I'm good. Yeah. Uh, I, why is it that like alcohol is the one thing that people are like, now, why is that? It's like, I just don't want to drink that right now. And I'm allowed to have agency over anything I put in my body. Ergo, I'm not going to have that today. Um, Because it, and so just being really cognizant of how we approach people who maybe say that they don't drink uh, and trying to release assumptions that we might have about that. Um, also, uh, taking on a posture of believing that the other person, um, is doing the best they can and that we may not be able to see the work quote, see Mm -hmm. the work. Um, there are people who are actively trying to change their drinking, who have coaches who, who have a bad night. Right. Mm -hmm. So you don't know what's happening the second that person leaves the party. Right. Mm -hmm. They might be going home. They might be calling their sponsor. They might be emailing Mm -hmm. me to say, I really messed up. Right. Or or something like that. So uh, 
don't look into someone's life and say, oh, they're just like, they're probably not even working on it. Think, oh, I wonder if maybe there's a way that they could use more care in their lives. Um, Mm -hmm. Thinking just from that viewpoint of, wow, there's a whole life that I just don't really understand here. And if, Mm -hmm. if, if anything, you know, be, being compassionate, no matter what, like, because regardless of if a person is actively changing their relationship with alcohol, personally, I think they are a beloved child of God. Yeah. And they mm-hmm. should be treated with utmost care, compassion. And, you know, they don't have to do anything. They don't have to ever do anything about alcohol. And, and my role as the one who professes to believe Christianity is to say, and what a beautiful soul you are. Yeah. Yeah. So getting mm-hmm. back into that root of how we look into things, mm-hmm. um, it can certainly become more complex if a person is harming themselves or others in a way that has caused um, family or community to understandably be concerned. Right. Um, in those situations, you know, seek out someone who can guide you through that. Um, the other big tip I always give, and I always feel like I know it's a big one, mm-hmm. uh, but when people come to me and say, how do I help this other person, right? How do I help this other person who's struggling that I love? Mm-hmm. I always say, do the work yourself. Mm. Start by doing your own discernment about your relationship with alcohol Maybe you could do a month of coaching. Maybe you could read some books about and start to really bring mindfulness into your own relationship with alcohol if you're a person who drinks, because Mm -hmm. there's a vast difference between saying to someone, I really think you need to get some help. Mm -hmm. I really think you need to consider rehab. I really think you need to consider AA or whatever versus saying I've really been digging into this part of my life and I was wondering if you would like to go to a meeting with me Mm -hmm. or I'm going to do dry January because I've just been really thinking about my relationship with alcohol. Would you like to do that together and be like accountability partners in that? Yeah. Because when you do that, you're saying, Oh no, I'm, I'm on this. Mm. If you'd like to join me, in this work. Yeah. Join me. And that is so invitational. Mm. That is such a shame reductionist way for a person who maybe is really scared to mm-hmm. say I'm doing a dry January to feel like, Oh, you're also thinking about this. I feel mm. safe now with you. Mm. And so it starts from a place that just isn't you, 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 and yeah. that is instead we, what if we cared for each other together around this? Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I think that it's very convicting in more than one sense. I think also, even for those who don't struggle with alcohol to be listening for doing your own work in other ways, because I know a lot of us can have the tendency to say, yeah, they're struggling. They're over here and I'm over here and I don't struggle. And once they're done struggling, they can come over here but I'll wait over here. And so you hear a lot of loneliness there in between the two, whether it's a marriage or a family. And so I love how uh, you're reminding us today, Erin, that we need to 
really come around people with love. And and I also want listeners to hear, because I know there's a lot of feelings that rise up on episodes like these sometimes. She also said, uh, set the boundaries you need to set, you know, and, yes. and I heard you say that that's a very important piece to the story too, for many who are in families with complex yes. systems. So thank you. Yes. And, and, and to just make sure we hone in on that, because I do think that's really important. You know, I do believe in, you got to put your mask on first and so care for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can love and care for a person and not condone action at the same mm-hmm. time. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is if we exacerbate shame, we actually help that person stay in an addictive pattern. Mm-hmm. Whereas if what we want is for that person to kind of get out of that pattern, we can show love and not shame them. And then also, again, set those boundaries so that I'm not enmeshed with you. I'm not letting your emotions rule my day to day. I'm just also being really cognizant of supportive language and ways to care for you that don't exacerbate shame. So Mm -hmm. I'm a boundary queen. Mm -hmm. I talk about boundaries all the time. It's uh, the core Mm -hmm. of what I do with people in recovery is help them set boundaries sometimes for the first time. Um, so, so I'm, I'm very pro boundaries. I also, when you were talking before, I remembered another really fun facet of this is I have friends who, um, who drink, you know, and and we're close friends, uh, but they maybe took a break. Uh, Some of them did maybe my course, which is a 40 day course, or they did a dry January and they have reached out to me and just said, you know, I'm not sober. I don't think I'll ever be sober, but I realized how hard it is to be sober mm-hmm. because for a month or 40 days, I had to like go to all these parties and have people be like, do you want some booze? And I had to be like, no, I'm good. Like, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's important to not assume that because you've done a dry January, you now understand what it is like to be <laughs> seeking yeah. lifetime sobriety, but when I say, you know, do the work first, part of it is because I've seen so many people say, I didn't realize how difficult it was until I really consciously decided, okay, yeah, I'm not going to drink for any short period of time. So even if it's just for you, I do see so many people who are just like, wow, it is like growing my compassion uh, muscle to do uh, a break of this. And now they're the people who are like, we need mocktails. Like they're not, you know, they're not sober, but they're like advocates for making sure it's compassionate because they're like, even though I'm not sober, I remember how hard it was to walk in this room. Right. So, so part of doing the work is also just like, oh, now I'm much more attentive to these other acts of compassion. Mm, Thank you. Yes. And even if anyone out there are, uh, you know, you're reminding me in the conversation that how alcohol is so served up to us. So I love that you're sharing about friends with mocktails after they've realized, oh gosh, this is hard. But also I'm going to say, if anyone's out there as a server, you know, please keep this in your awareness as well. Cause here I am not struggling with it, but I still feel the guilt of when I go to the table and I'm not usually there for alcohol and they're like, don't you want to drink? Here's your drink, shoving the wine menu in my face. Um, and that is something that I see everywhere. Um, so I'm really grateful for you even just plugging that of like, please be mindful people, um, that the people you're encountering are beloved souls of Christ. And so you don't want to, uh, you know, bring things to people that are are hard for them to step away from. Now, do you also work with families who are family members of those who are struggling 
Or are you mainly here because you're like, my time is limited and I can only work with the actual person in recovery? Um, I wouldn't say I've worked with anyone who explicitly said like, I'd like to to work with you in that regard. I've certainly talked to plenty of yeah. people, um, given them resources, but as far as like a coaching relationship, I have not done that. Um, I have some spiritual directees who mm-hmm. have, uh, those sorts of challenges and who, um, just want a, a spiritual directee who can understand the facets mm-hmm. and the challenges of what it is like to be in that space and in that, that type of relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, if a person was in that situation and wanted to sort of, as I say, start with themselves, yeah. I would certainly be happy to be in a coaching relationship where we could also then have a, a second conversation going on about how this is then affecting those other parts of their lives. So I would be open to it if someone thought that that support would be the most helpful for them. I love that. I love how you're taking us to outside of the box ways of thinking together. And frankly, that's just refreshing because as you share in your book, there's long journeys sometimes of, you know, needing extra different kinds of support so that we can feel like we're on a, a track that is fresh and, and it's more holistic. And I really want people to know that's the feeling I get from your work is that you're, you're mindful and you're calling us to be the same. So thank you. And can you tell our listeners where they can touch base with you and get a hold of your beautiful writing and book and, and so much more? Yes. Um, I appreciate that opportunity. Um, I, I'm, it's kind of easy. Everything is my full name. Erin <laughs> um, Jean Ward is my uh, Instagram. It's my Twitter. It's my TikTok. It's all, it's all the things. It's my website. So if you know my full name, you know how to find me. Mm-hmm. Um, and my book is pretty much available where books are sold. If you want to grab a copy, um, I do have a sub stack where I offer reflections. Mm-hmm. I also offer healing tools every week as a way to offer some really free uh, more practical care because I know that um, this work needs to be accessible for all people. And I want to make sure that there's something there for people at every, at every um, socioeconomic space right now. Um, and check out, uh, you know, coaching, spiritual direction, uh, speaking, all of that is available on my website. If you want to learn more. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. You do so many different facets of this work and care. And I just know so many people are going to be touched by this. So of course it's in the show notes for you guys too. Thank you so much, Erin, for your time today with us. Such a joy. It's been an, it's been an honor and a gift and the joy is all mine. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Guys, Erin really delivered there so much for you. And I really hope that you will continue to grapple with these questions she brought to you today. Make sure you give her a follow on Instagram. She's very active as a writer in her Substack. Her writing has a prose that is just delightful and more important than any temporal delights. May this journey that we took today together and the one you're taking now around alcohol truly be a gift to you and your people. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. Thank you again for listening with us. It was so wonderful to have you. I love knowing we're doing this journey together, not perfectly, but with love, grace, and hopefully some fun too. If you love today's episode, make sure you leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcast or Spotify so others can find it too. Visit our show notes so you can get all the links from today's show, as well as EnneagramAndMarriage.com, the Instagram, the Facebook, and all over the place. Make sure you spread the word. Love living intentionally with you. Bye-bye.